0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.
1: In 2011, right on the eve of the famous Bin Laden raids by SEAL Team 6, many journalists, celebrities, and even the President of the United States gathered in the Washington, D.C. famous hotel right in DuPont Circle, where President Obama started taking digs at Donald Trump. He said, now, I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to something that's important for him to focus on, the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? Where are Biggie and Tupac? The night was met with laughter and infamy because, as many reports have followed since, that is the night that is rumored Donald Trump said, you know what? I'm going to run for president. Whether you believe it or not, the White House Correspondents' Center has always annually been a convening and gathering of Washington's glitterati, celebrities, journalists, politicians. And whether that combination or not reflects on America's best or America's worst, the point is that comedy, even in times of war, even in times of crisis, has a major way to affect political conversation and even give us a sense of hope and catharsis that, in spite of everything going on, if we can laugh at ourselves, maybe we can be better off together. But that sense of comedy permeates in different ways for different communities over time. Most recently, at that same White House Correspondents' Dinner, comedian Michelle Wolfe took a lot of flack from the media and the Washington press corps when she not only slammed Donald Trump at this year's dinner, but she was also met with swift commentary in terms of the crudeness of her jokes— just a couple years ago, Hassan Minaj spoke out at that same dinner about Donald Trump's immigration ban and famed Muslim ban being Muslim American himself. And most of Washington's press corps said he killed it. Perfect mic drop. And it was met with viral commentary and laughs around the world. So how does commentary really intersect with our political debates? Whether you're Melissa McCarthy portraying an angry Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live, or you're Tina Fey impersonating Sarah Palin spotting Russia right from Alaska, Comedy has been core to our political dialogue, but now as the nation gets more divided and outcries ranging from migrant crises from the border to immigration bans to even just the types of cartoonish figures that seem to occupy our political conversation day in and day out, comedy is more of a tool not just to unpack what's happening, but really to point out the flaws of the very actions that are being taken. Joining us today, John D. Domenico, an American Emmy-nominated actor, writer, comedian, and impersonator who has performed many different characters over the years and is best known for his award-winning Donald Trump impersonations. While his voice is no stranger to countless media outlets, including the floors of Chelsea Handler and Late Night with Conan O'Brien, even Fox News and Slate podcasts, he has not only been able to bring to bear comedy and impersonations to make a point about what the state of opinions are around the country in our political dialogue, but also just to evoke a few laughs and to bring a lighthearted voice to the tweets, the conversations, and the morass of political discourse that continue to tear our country apart, but bring it back together with the stitch of laughter. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer? John, thanks so much for joining American Enough.
0: Oh, great. It's great to be here, Vikram. So uh, maybe just
1: start with, uh, it would be helpful for, for our listeners to hear a little bit about kind of how you've seen your role in not just political dialogue, but specifically conversations around current events you've you've not only been able to deploy your impersonations but also your writing um your own sense of comedy your own acting do you sort of see yourself as an actor that wears different hats at different moments in time based off of what the role is calling for or because of your your famed trump impersonations and given the current political climate do you sort of see a a heightened responsibility to lean in to that um Trump personification uh, and either leverage that for laughter or leverage that for, for business?
0: I, you know, for me, I, I want to make the largest audience laugh. Um, There's so much humor with Trump and there's so many ways to go about um, portraying him that, you know, my whole thing is when I go into a room I don't want to alienate half the audience, which a lot of comedians have no problem doing, but i that's not how I, comedically, that's not where I come from. I like coming from a place where I can, it's a big tent and I can make as many people laugh as possible. So, but, but within that, there's ways to be incisive and there's ways to be insightful and there's a way to bring um, maybe a side that's not seeing him as clearly as they should, kind of illuminating some some things about him, if it's possible, because there's it's, there's such overexposure, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine the overexposure is very very real. Um, you know, I, I remember just a few uh, years ago or a couple of years ago, the Halloween parties I went to were were littered with Trump uh, personifications. I'm curious. How do you break through that noise as an actor, as an impersonator? I mean, you obviously have an incredible track record, um, but in terms of raising your hand and showing that, um, not only that that deft and likeness to be able to impersonate his tone and voice, but also to sort of bring the the best sort of version of comedy and satire to bear, is it about, as you said, offering that pitch down the middle, not necessarily alienating audiences in that, in that humor? Or is it more just sort of bringing to life... Um, through through tone and tenor, what we think is going on in Trump's mind? Or is that none of the above, all of the above?
0: Well, just, you know, most of what people are seeing as Trump is on TV. And I've done a lot of TV, a lot of, you know, all those things. My main area that I feel that I'm strongest in is the live performance. Uh, and that's where I can really bring Everything, the physicality, the voice, um, material written specifically for a live audience for that for that specific audience, because a lot of the stuff that I do sometimes is, you know, corporate audiences and I know who they are and I know who the demographic is. So... uh, that what I'm always trying to do is take it to the next level, not necessarily edginess wise, but if you're, it's one thing to watch stuff on television. Um, You're not, there's not total engagement. When I come into a room and it's 500 or 5,000 people, what I'm trying to do is engage with that entire audience. So they're getting a different perspective on him. Almost like uh, if it was one of Trump's, you know, never ending, never ending victory rallies. (laughs) So I want to, That's that's, you know, obviously it's different in that sense. And my goal is to really bring him to life and be much more three dimensional within the, the context of the character and the comedy. And I can be a little more long format. A lot of times on TV, if I'm doing an interview, like on the, the today show for Australia or Fox news or any of those bits you're, you're, hemmed in not material you're hemmed in because of the time a lot of these things are very very short and i can't develop kind of long narratives and, and and premises that i can keep jumping off of
1: yeah and and is that a maybe tell me if you think i'm reading into this too much but you know you you hear often actors um you know on the on the range of serious uh, when it comes to maybe Daniel Day-Lewis portraying Lincoln uh, uh in a movie a couple years back all the way to even um uh Larry David portraying Bernie Sanders earlier this year on Bernie SNL Sanders. um yeah. and it, it, and you and you when you when you hear them sort of out of character off screen in interviews they they give you a little glimmer into what it's like to occupy that character or that headspace maybe in the case of of, of day lewis you have a little bit more of a of an intense involved method acting approach Mm -hmm. and maybe in the case of larry david it's it's a little easier to pull off humor based off of bernie's uh anger or or sense of passion um maybe there's an in-between as well for for you Uh, Given that you're trying to provide a more, as you said, three-dimensional lift to characters and certainly one of the most uh, animated characters that the world stage, certainly the world political stage has ever seen in Donald Trump. What's sort of the process of occupying that state of mind or even making a decision that if if you're going to be on Fox News one morning or if you're going to do a bit uh, in front of an audience one evening – and you're trying to add lift to what he's saying do you benchmark the the type of tone or the level of humor you're he, you're offering based off of the content that that you're reading from or you're trying to impersonate or do you do you kind of keep it steady throughout I guess another way of putting it is if you were to read live t- Trump tweets, would you change the tone if it was something about – that seemed absurd oh. like him calling North Korea a dictator a rocket man versus something that seemed quite solemn or somber right. like the migrant crisis?
0: Well, g- g- um, two things. When I do the tweets for the Trump cast for Slate, you know, one of the reasons they brought me in uh, is because I have a long history of doing Trump and I can – I'm, I, you know, as an actor, trained actor, my thing is this is what, you know, the, the work that I've done, having done Trump since 2004, my reading on this is what I'm pretty sure he's really feeling. So if it is something, you know, Rocket Man, a month ago or two months ago, little Rocket Man, he's very upset. You know what I mean? He can't stand the guy. Terrible, terrible guy. You know, terrible dictator. But now that he's a friend, we had such an incredible meeting in Singapore. Great sense of humor. What a great guy. Isn't he amazing? You know, so those tweets are going to be, those tweets are going to, he's, you know, and he is very effusive and he's very, what I say about Trump is he has a glass head. You know, you really pretty much know what's going on with him because he really can't, he has no poker face. He can't really contain anything. Uh, And luckily for me, I've seen this huge arc with him because I started doing him back in 2004. And back then... Uh, and I was always, just so you know, I was always fascinated with Trump. I'm from the Philadelphia area. My dad was a steel worker. I had, you know, as an actor, I always wanted to be here in New York City. And, you know, when I started learning about New York City, you know, I was trying to, like you know, who are the, who are the, the, the icons of the city currently? And one thing about Trump, and I'm going to ju- just jump around here for a second. Um, one thing ye- that's amazing about Trump is, is his timing his timing is incredible. He was here in the late 70s, early 80s really starting his, you know, his dominance here. Well, you could say that. His his proposed dominance in the city because at that time a lot of the well-known business icons had fallen away or died, the Astors and the Carnegies and the Rockefellers were at the end of their dynasty. He came in at a time when there wasn't really any well-known American businessman. And he was able to say, hey, I'm a big successful businessman. You know, like I'm here in New York, greatest builder in New York City, which at the time just (laughs) wasn't the case. But he had said that and he put himself out front. And, you know, um, Americans are love that stuff. Like, Oh, he's a big businessman. And, you know, at a time at that time in the late seventies, early eighties, there was the Hemsley hotels and he was opening up his hotel, you know, their hotels, but he, he kind of stepped out front, said he was an American businessman and kind of everyone went to him for that, for that reason. And he did the same thing with his presidential run. Cause he's been touring with being president since the eighties <laughs> since the early '80s, so he he knew he knew the right moment to to step in. Going back to what I said before, having done him for so long since 2004, you know, you saw him on interviews, and uh then The Apprentice happened, and on The Apprentice, he was a little bit constrained because you know Mark Burnett had him behind. The desk and a blue team, green team, you both did very, very well. But the blue team, you lost, you lost, you failed. So he was kind of restricted. But that TV time over those years, you kind of saw him blossom, become more comfortable, and then by the run, when he, you know, came down that escalator June of two thousand and fifteen, he was a different person physically his physicality had changed he was very comfortable if you watch those first few years of The Apprentice he was really he didn't like the move he didn't know what to do on screen and he really came into himself by the time he announced his presidency and then those stump speeches on the road through 2015 and 16 I'm sure you've seen them he was all over the place it was like a 90 minute stand up act because there was no policy other than we're going to build a wall, tremendous wall, 2,000 miles long, 55 feet high, with Trump hotels every 100 miles. And the windows will only face the American side. It's going to be incredible, I have to tell you. <laughs> Mex- Mexico is going to pay for it. And he you know, he knows what, what's, what works and – how he just, he's very smart in that respect. Comedically, there's so much material that when I do go on, um, something like Fox, when I was on red eye, we kind of talked about everything in advance and I knew what I would be talking about. When you do the interviews, they're firing questions at you. And you have, you have pretty much no idea what they're going to ask. So you mentally prepare a bunch of stuff? Because TV interviews, your response has to be like literally a sentence. So I'm mentally preparing things that I can respond with that are one sentence, two sentences, max, get the joke in, and then they're going to ask the next question. So every format is different. So you mentally prepare. When you first do TV interviews, especially on, you know, know, couch shows like that, and you know. You know, good morning, Buffalo and the Today Show and this thing and that thing, you're you're going to your preps are different and you want to be up on the latest stuff, obviously, because they're up on the latest stuff. Uh When I'm doing Conan or Chelsea, the writers are writing most of those Uh when I did when I did a lot of stuff for Australian TV and British television, their formats are a little longer, and we would work out what I was going to say. And if they had another, I just did one for the Today Show in Australia, and we had a Kim Jong Un, and it was a six minute piece, which is very long, very long. So I they even said like we're going to give you a minute up front to say whatever you like, which was great. That gave me an opportunity to write some very specific stuff. About the whole upcoming summit, so each each one's a different animal, and and, and so I, I kind of
1: want to go back to something that you were saying about um, the president himself uh, in the context of comedy and it, as being a tool of of both reflecting mm-hmm. on issues of the day while also kind of making folks laugh. And that's undoubtedly what was said at the top is that, you know, different people will have different reactions Correct. to it. Yeah. Um which is an obvious statement, but perhaps now more than ever um as as our country gets uh more vitriolic with the rhetoric we use around oh, policies yeah. that I agree with or that you may disagree with, it seems that our comedy is also commensurate with that division. Um you know, late night with with uh, Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert have taken on a very, very different shape and tone now with regards to to President Trump. Even um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel famously uh, took to his monologue to talk about his own child's uh, plight with the healthcare care system um, when when his health was at risk to make it a reflection upon, uh, you know, repealing Obamacare. Um, you had even mentioned earlier that the president has uh you know long known or long toyed with the notion of of running for office or or feeling like he he could pretty much do anything and you know he could do business in New York so he could he could run out of run the country from the Oval Office. But but on that night in 2011, rightly or wrongly, several years later, a lot of people reflected and said that was the moment that, you know, really <clears throat> upset him and he was going to run or separately. There are a lot. There's a lot of reflection that when they, when people in America see Jimmy Kimmel re- t- leverage what's supposed to be kind of a fun evening hour at home um, before you go to bed, um, say that that may have been a little too far, a little too political. And and so I'm just curious, as someone who traffics in comedy, but specifically at the intersection of our country's uh, national debate, political or otherwise, and that intersection with comedy— What is the risk of of alienating people, knowing, of course, that, as you said, you're going for the biggest laugh. But does that sense of alienation, is that good? Is that comedy working the way it's supposed to? Or is that is have we come to a point in which comedy itself needs to be as politically inclusive as the policies of our time that people are claiming they need to be?
0: That's a great question. You know, I think it's a decision somewhere Along the line, I'll hear, be playing Trump as much as I do, and being exposed to on a given week hundreds and hundreds of people, sometimes thousands at different events. I'll do photo ops and or I'll spend time with clients, and and it, I hear things no one else is going to hear, and I I'll do a photo op and people lean into me. This was before the election, but people will say to me. Um, I'm, they would whisper, go, I'm voting for you. Or, you know, lock that blank up. Or, you know, I heard, I, I cannot believe what I heard. And going to comedy, specifically the late night comedians, I was in an elevator. I was leaving the ballroom where I was just performing and some people were on the elevator and they were, Oh, Mr. President talking to me. And, Some the woman was saying, "I used to listen to, I used to watch Stephen Colbert. I won't watch him anymore." I've heard this about Seth Meyers. I've heard this about Jimmy Kimmel. I've heard this about Colbert. Um, uh, Not so much Conan, but where people are saying, "Like, I'll never watch those shows again. They're so anti our president. They're so, you know, they didn't mind when you know they may have been bashing Obama, but now anything, any slight against Trump." Everyone's taking it personally. Uh, And that's what, that's the gift that Trump has. He can, you become defensive for him where you can't see the humor. And, and those guys have the infrastructure for, to play right to their audience and not be Mm -hmm. inclusive. And it's a choice, Uh, you know, it's a choice. I mean, I, 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 You could probably, you know, at some point, Stephen Colbert could say, hey, we're doing a week, you know, next week is going to be Trump free because going back to I think, you know, we had said before, there's kind of a it's 24 hours a day and. He's you know every hour every thirty minutes with Trump, like the the Fox interview he did, he puts out so much stuff that it takes so long to clarify it and verify it, and all these things it's it's we're constantly following up on him, which he loves I mean that's his whole thing. he loves all the attention, negative or positive, so I think comedically a big part of our country is not being served humor that they would like to see about Trump. It doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, kiss his ass, but I, I can see where a big part of the audience feels. I can't watch this guy anymore. And I can't watch this guy anymore. Cause all they're going to do is bash my president. And it's just a weird part, place in history to be where people are that defensive
1: yeah and and it's a really good point that you made in terms of having almost an infrastructure or architecture of of supporters or non-supporters who are willing to make that offensive critique for you right, right. like if if you don't find something humorous then immediately um that th- you have your entire fan base whether it's on Twitter whether it's just over the dinner table you know equally agreeing with you saying that that wasn't the right way to go which is in many respects, I would argue and, and tell me your thoughts here that that is the entire notion of why humor, free expression, satire is not only so core to this country and our First Amendment, but really core to any healthy democracy, because if you were to only go by what the leadership wanted you to go by and if you were to only have, you know a captive audience of people that agreed with you like yes men, then you wouldn't really have that sense of dissent or disagreement mm-hmm. or spirited dialogue that this country has been built upon. And I think now more than ever, humor, of course, just one tool in the arsenal of tools to disagree with a a public figure or a policy or just a state of, of dialogue in this country. But a really, really important one, one that allows many of us to to kind of not only see sort of the cartoonish nature of some of the, the efforts that are being proposed or being conducted by an administration, no matter who's in charge, but it also gives us a little bit of insight into um why we as Americans might be able to actually have a path forward in figuring some of this stuff out if we could just, you know, laugh a little bit more about it. Right. And so not to say that that satire and, and, and impersonations are the ball game, But in many respects, does humor now more than ever have a more important role in being able to deal with the heightened volatility and disagreements of our time? Or, or would you argue that it, it maintains or has always maintained a same level of import kind of across the years?
0: No, I actually think it's more important. And I do watch... Seth Meyers and I do watch Colbert and I do – you know, I try to keep up on all of this stuff because what they do with their humor is really distill the insanity of the day down. And what I try to do like – per- like give you an example, um, the, this whole thing with the immigration – uh, the chap happening currently with the the, parent, the children being taken away from their parents. So I'm watching this as it unfolds. And for me, and then Trump saying like, well, you know, we don't, we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. We have to do it because it's the law. It's the law. And you know, it's the Democrats, it's a democratic law. So right off the bat, you're like, okay, for me as a writer, if I'm going up that night, uh, what I would love, you know, it's the OK, it's the law. So was, you know, ACA. But they got rid of that. So why don't you get rid of this? And you also have the House, the Senate and the presidency. And you're telling me you're you have a democratic law that you have to follow. So as a joke, you know, if I'm saying, you know, I would take what Trump says and then kind of invert it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a law we have to follow it. Though we haven't followed many of their other laws, but, you know, we, we want to be nice to the Democrats because they're such tremendous people. Great laws. you yeah. got to follow the good ones. You know, wh- where is the insanity in what he's saying? Where does it fall apart? Where does the logic fall apart? Where's the inflection point where everything just dissolves? And with a lot of his stuff, there's always some point where things just fall apart. Even the, um, even the, um, the uh, inspector general's report. He agreed with everything in the report except the summary. <laughs> the conclu- <laughs> He did. He agreed with everything except the conclusion. They. This was such an incredible. So much was great, except the part where it came to the end. Then I, I don't believe any of it. It's just. You <laughs> stand there and you're thinking like, how can it's? It's so. It's so crazy, uh, you know. Has, has
1: anyone? I mean. It, it, it is. It is crazy. It is. It is a little wild. How um, fast and loose we can be as a country now, with with facts, with our attitudes. Mm-hmm, how yeah. quickly that. How quickly that misrepresentation spins out of control, or how quickly people divide themselves into two camps, even over something has um, benign as a, a an ABC revival of of the Roseanne Barr show. Oh, um, I know. But pe- people are people react, and you know. Who, who am i to opine on whether that reaction is valid or not right people right. are are open to you know the feelings that they have and the and the values that they hold but I, I will ask from from your perspective given that there is such sensitivity that has played out even in the comedic landscape um whether it is the recent cancellation of of the tv show um, of Roseanne, um, you know, certainly on the heels of some incredibly inappropriate and callous remarks tweeted out at, um, at the former president's advisor, Valerie Jarrett, or on the other end of the spectrum, if it's, you know, the the commentary of Samantha Bee uh, on her mm-hmm. TBS right. late night show uh, offering less than kind words and, and flippant language, um, some would argue, you know, the callous language, discussing language against, um, you know, the the president's uh, first daughter or sorry, daughter, Ivanka Trump, you know, almost immediately people start grouping themselves into camps. Very tribal. Yeah. Right. Very tribal. Right. Very tribal. Exactly. And so I guess I'm curious when you observe that, um, do you start to reflect on whether there are guardrails in comedy or, frankly, for your comedy that you won't touch or that you will touch? Um, Or do you see those instances of trying to push up as close to the line or maybe even touching past the line as important to trigger some sort of national conversation?
0: Well, you know, a lot of times if I'm I'm hired You know, like I said, I do a lot of corporate stuff. So there's automatic guardrails right there. And I have to be very, I have to be, you know, if I can get something in in a way, like just it doesn't, I did a very, very conservative group in DC last week. So I went through a list of all the people who, not everyone, because, but I went through the list of people who've left the White House, you know, Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, you know, I went through all this stuff and I said, all these people, you know they had a they had to leave. They went on to bigger and better things. And you know the saying: if you love something, you have to let it go. You know because in Trump's mind, it, it, no matter what happens, it's he's going to see the best best of it. You know, like and he did. It was a success for him in some way. Going back to what you were just saying about um, uh, Roseanne and Samantha B, specific to that, what has happened in this country? it's happened incredibly fast is we've lost the ability to contextualize anything. So it's always very tribal. So-and-so did this, and -and so-and-so did that, and it should be, they should both have their heads chopped off, which, which isn't the case. Roseanne has had a very long history of outrageous comments on Twitter, live, I mean, you know, meltdowns, all of these things. Um, and you know what happened with her show? I mean, I was following that in real time. I actually had tweeted like, she's going to lose her show. And I thought it would be like in a couple of days. I had no idea it would be within an hour of me writing that. That's the other thing. Things move so fast. Now things aren't really processed. They're just done. Um, The fact that she lost her show is a bummer for all the actors and the writers and the lighting people and everybody, all the the workaday people. But the fact of the matter is ABC knew what was happening with her they know her history they know how she is they know about all the meltdowns so it's one of those things where you have to look at the big picture samantha b saying what she said it was you know i i was watching it i was shocked i was shocked because from a you know her content is very funny but it also has real meaning to it if you watch any of her stories And I thought her using the C word overshadowed the point she was trying to make because now everyone forgets what she was talking about. Now it becomes about the C word. And Samantha, Samantha, is a very smart person. Um, That show is taped in front of a lot that, you know, the writers wrote it. She, they rehearsed it. They shot it. It was okayed by TBS. Um, But she's never, ever done anything like that before. So when you contextualize it, it's kind of, that was bad. It's never happened before. She doesn't have a history of it. You know, you have to look at it that way. Not well. Roseanne lost her show. Samantha Bee has to lose her show. There's no. That's what I. Talk, that's what I mean by there's no context. Everybody wants an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and that's not just now how things work. But everyone is so angry, and everyone has their, you know their their backup, and every you can predict pretty much anything. Robert De Niro, um at the at the Tony Awards coming out and saying F Trump, it was kind of like, you're like, why, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, even if, it, if it was a Trump rally anti-Trump rally, you would get it. But for him to come out unprompted at the Tonys and do that, I was just kind of like, really? Cause you just poured gasoline all over that stage. Cause you already can predict What the outcome on the right, what the response is going to be on the right. And, and one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that all of this is a distraction to what's really going on. You know, we're talking because the one great thing that's happening with comedy you know, uh, in comedy, uh, Trevor Noah's um, Daily Show and Seth Meyer, those two specifically, they can really take those things and contextualize them and find the humor in them.
1: Right. Um, and and maybe even add a little bit of food for thought. In yes, terms of your which own is political awareness. Right. right. And
0: going back to what I, your question, what I initially said, comedy now is more important. But comedy is not the comedy from you know political comedy from the laugh from laughing. Comedy has now changed. It's amazing that John Oliver has a bigger fact checking team. <laughs> <laughs> than than many news sources, uh, you know, because that it, it it's it's amazing how you have to get factual news from quote unquote fake news like The Daily Show and Seth Meyers, because what is considered real news has, uh, you know, it's we're is being. Accused of being fake news, and, and 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 many much much of that
1: that sort of commentary around playing fast and loose on the facts, um, in the reporting sphere, mm-hmm. um, in many respects. What you have is, you know, in terms of the tribalism we were talking about earlier, you have uh, equally tribal and rival news networks out there that are trying to advance a specific thesis. Now, I don't want to buy into this belief or critique that a lot of these or on balance, all of the journalists out there are just there to advance a certain personal ideology or yeah, mission. I don't believe mission. that. I don't believe That's that far from the truth, right? But when you take a look at what Roger Ailes built at well, Fox News well, – yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if, even if you take a look at the bent of you know morning shows on MSNBC, it's it's very clear that there are certain values that are being offered uh, through Correct. the through the news of the day, but right through the journalists offering that news or that description of the news. Similarly, it looks like there have been. Attempts to create comedic enclaves or comedic tribes of types of humor that cater to specific audiences, right? So notably, we see in Hollywood lots of commentary about, you know, a lot of concerns in the way that society within the sorry, not society, but the the treatment of individuals within that uh, the the vertical of of entertainment are being treated, that there isn't enough gender parity when it Mm -hmm. comes to pay between male and female actresses, or there isn't enough of a depiction of of strong black female leads or of Asian American and Pacific Islander leads. And what you get are certain types of um, outcomes, uh, assets, content that gets produced with a very specific demographic in mind. You have a film that may play well by way of market research done by a studio um, to an audience of, say, uh, 24 and up females or another type of movie may play well to a specifically uh, black American audience and so on and so forth. Similarly, in in comedy, what you have is uh, very famously you have, you know, types of comedy that cater almost to very specific experiences in America, um, whether that is more of the um, uh, Jeff Foxworthy commentary, Mm -hmm. which is often associated with sort of a quote unquote flyover state type of humor or blue collar humor, um, or you have more of a a Hannibal Burris. Um, or a Hari Kandabulu, who provide a lot more biting commentary about sort of the race and context of their race and embrace in society. Um, or maybe you have someone more middle of the road, like a South Asian comedian like Aziz Ansari, who rarely opines on his own race and is really just talking about how he doesn't have as much romantic game when he flirts via text message. He's, but he's, you have these he's Woody Allen. He's an,
0: he's, he's, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly, exactly. Right, and so right. you, you have these different camps of of entertainment, different camps of of humor, um, poll tested, focus grouped, designed to make sure that whoever the end consumer is feels comfortable, sees themselves Mm -hmm. up there. Is that is that ruining the sense of of being able to just sit down together and laugh with one another? Or has that always been how comedy is meant to play out?
0: You know what? I I have to answer this in a by my own experience playing Trump i've i've done i i think i did 50 appearances on fox news red eye which was the late night kind of panel show humor show with a conservative bent tom schaloes the host he's a friend of mine when i used to do fox and friends in the morning i would be on and i you know i i check social media you know, because that's the world we live in. And after I would be on, and I thought I killed it. You know what I mean? I was tremendous. So good. So good. <laughs> and, you know, and the fact that they had me on, it was very nice. in the morning show, and they do reach a lot of people. So I would read the um, Facebook comments and the social media comments. And these were the comments. You know, why are you bashing our president? Fox News is so liberal. What about Hillary? How about Benghazi? Yeah, Benghazi. It would just devolve into this political thing and i was just there to do humor but the but my takeaway from it was they conservatives hated the fact that no one bashed obama nobody in the le- you know left right comedy world every, you know just comedy world let's not say right or left nobody bashed obama like they bashed bush or Reagan. Um, Bill Clinton got a little more, you know, he was, but he was handled with kid gloves. So I think this has been brewing for, for quite a long time where they don't feel that they're being represented uh, comedically. Right. And, and you can, if you, and if you are objective and you look back over the eight years, Obama was the president he was handled so gently. And I think part of it was people didn't know what to do. They didn't want to be accused of being racist or they didn't want to, you know, bash the first black president or they just loved him so much. But he kind of got a comedic pass other than like on key and peel when they had um their, his interpreter. Uh, so I, I, I spending so much time in, you know, having done so much at fox uh and then something like chelsea which was totally to the left it's in, i have a very unique perspective on how trump is put out to the world through different um platforms through different comedy shows through different news shows and i i you know i i i feel that there is somewhat of an imbalance um not that, not right now because trump puts himself out there hourly but there wasn't that th- th- there's no place for a comedy that was uh, a, a comedy f- about obama so much if you know what i'm yeah, saying and,
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and and, and i mean let, let's face it i, I think that the wall snl and um you know several late night shows and comedians uh, may have held their punch or may have pulled punches on Obama. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Donald Trump is just so effusive with everything that he does that the, that the source of material oh, it's, is just that it's, much more vast.
0: Yeah. Right? It's like a gusher. It's a, it's a geyser it's a of comedy. Absolutely. Yeah. You and, almost and, you know, can't keep I, up with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I want to really just double click on this point Um that you were that you had mentioned a moment ago, which is that there there may very well be a real sense that when you are being communicated to, whether you are um, you know hearing an ad that's targeted for your preferences um, on TV. Or you are hearing a comedian because you, you want a reprieve from, from the day-to-day churn of your life and you want a way to laugh. Or if you're just hearing a, a pitch uh, on new policies from a candidate or a politician as to the things that are going to affect your pocketbook and your life, mm-hmm. that sense of connecting uh, with another person on the other side of the phone, on the other side of the screen, or just on the other side of you, that is very real and that is very important. And, and whether or not I, I – love the the humor of Conan O'Brien, or I love the humor of a Jeff Foxworthy or someone else in between, um, it is important for us to create safer spaces and environments where we can feel comfortable with who we are and comfortable about the commentary that is biting and satirical about mm-hmm. who we are, because that makes us all feel a little bit more comfortable in that laughter. And I'm And I'm curious... In an era where we do have these tribal senses of comedy and in an era in which we are worlds apart from even understanding our own countrymen and women, you know, underscored by the feeling that was swept over of America the day after Election Day in 2016, but still a feeling that at least 63 million Americans felt that their time was now um, to come in terms of their prosperity how do we maybe you could close this out with, with an easy question here? But how do we use humor knowing that sometimes it will be tailored, knowing sometimes it will be targeted to a specific demographic? Can we use that to bridge that divide between those 63 million Americans and the rest of the country that, that feels concerned day to day about what's going on? Or will, will humor just be one aspect of the equation and that there's more work to do on the actual political debate side?
0: Well I I think I think humor can be used to kind of bring us close you know keep the comedy but to bring us together and and again if you look at the outlets of Kimmel and the Daily Show and Colbert and uh, and Conan and um and who am I forgetting a uh, Fallon those and actually Fallon doesn't really he's backed off some of the political stuff but th- there's a place where people can go after a long day of work and get Humor that is either more, um, that the slings and arrows are thrown at either both sides and show the hypocrisy of both sides, or if it's just going to stay the way it is, this divide is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't see where there's a mandate. Uh, on broadcast or anywhere else where someone's going to say, hey, you know, we need to kind of fold back in half of the audience, half of the uh, unserved audience and right. be a little more, you know, be a little more uh, the broader in our humor or less political. Uh, I just don't see that happening because ratings are up um, overall on a lot of these shows because of that. And they feel that, you know, this this recipe is currently working. But it's also... It's also divisive, and not just in in comedy, but in news and, and everything else. But ironically, this is how Trump ran his businesses. He always pitted people against each other. He's he's the country is become his company. To a certain extent, he would pit people against each other, and and you know I've read an, I've read just about everything on him, how he operates, and and this is very much. He likes this. This is people at each other's throats, people backstabbing, people, you know, t- tearing each other down. That's very much how he operates. And and one thing, uh this isn't so much about well, it is about comedy. You know, Trump promotes fake news. He's always fake news, fake news, fake news. And the right, reason right. the reason he says that is is because he created fake news. And he's always been aware of it. He played his own publicist,
1: right, right, under well, numerous and- names,
0: and he knew that the regular media structure took those stories and printed those stories. So when he says fake news, fake news, he he, I mean, part of that's for real. Like he put out fake news, and they bought it, lock, stock, and barrel.
1: Right, but and, and and he has definitely experienced. The publication of of mistruths, of misrepresentation, and mm-hmm. non facts, time and time again. But you know, part of what you know your role is, or what a comedian or writer or even cartoonist role is, to try and show the cartoonish representation. Oh,
0: absolutely, of, yeah. Of so we yeah. On right we here. had a lot of we we had a lot of fun with his John Barron and his John Miller, and you, you know, because there's just who does that. Who gets on the phone? Well, Mister Tre- tremendous guy, great guy. He's not dating Madonna anymore, but he is with Carla Bruni, beautiful woman, his type of woman. And you listen to these tapes, and you are thinking like, "This is crazy. This is just
1: <laughs> if 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 the president were here with us today, and 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 we were to say that you know humor is important." to help us heal as a country. Mm. Um, but it's also important to have a sense of humor. So that way we can laugh at ourselves as a, as a proxy for protecting free expression and not cracking down on the First Amendment just when we don't like what we hear um, about ourselves. What, what, what would he say to us right now?
0: He would say, well, you know what? I I agree with that if the comedians are on Fox News. I like Fox. They're great people. Very friendly. They're very good to me. They're very nice. Other than Kim Jong-un's people, his news, boy, they handle him very nicely. Very nicely. (laughs)
1: Well, I I can only imagine what happens to a Kim Jong-un impersonator uh, in North Korea. But uh, I appreciate you being here, John. Um, I really appreciate you bringing some laughter, uh, much-needed laughter to a situation. And uh, thank you for for joining American Enough.
0: Well, Vikram, I have to tell you, this is going to be your most highly rated show ever. Get ready, because things are going to blow up for you. It's really going to be incredible. Believe me. Believe me. I want to talk to Putin. Maybe we can get you on RT first, and then we'll get you on the Fox.
1: (laughs) Thank you, John.
0: All right, Vikram. Good speaking with you. Bye-bye.
1: This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.